Good afternoon. It's Friday the 22nd of April 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Okay, well, let's get uh, <clears throat> straight on with uh, Ukraine here. And uh, this is the latest uh, defence intelligence report. Uh, so Putin's decision to blockade uh, uh, the steel plant, we're going to talk about that in a second, uh, likely indicates a desire to contain Ukrainian resistance in Mariupol and free up Russian forces to be deployed elsewhere in eastern Ukraine. A full ground assault would likely incur significant Russian casualties, further decreasing their overall combat effectiveness. It's quite amusing uh, that they have posted that as the first item on the uh, intelligence update, Patrick, because, of course, there is video of Putin saying exactly that during the rounds and uh, the Daily Mail uh, really trying to make fun of that piece of video today. But anyway, you've got some maps for, for us. I just wanted to show the, uh, the def defense intelligence map uh, and we'll compare the ones that you've got in a second with this. Uh, but uh, clearly Donetsk uh, is the main region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Donbass there, of course. Donbass, sorry, yes. Yeah, Don, and that's Donetsk yes. and Lugansk, just there on your uh, on your right-hand side. Uh, that's eastern Ukraine and Donbass. And then down to Mariupol there, you can see on the uh, uh, northeastern uh, part there, the Sea of Azov. Uh, that's where a lot of the focus and attention is right yes. now. We'll, we'll give you an update as to the standoff at the Azovstal plant. But then what's really interesting, Mike, um, is how things are creeping uh, there past Kherson, just above Crimea, uh, on the south part there, approaching Odessa. Uh, that looks like that's going to be the next big front right. uh, to open up. Well, one of many fronts, actually, but uh, right now things are focused uh, in Donbass uh, and also just what uh, the Russians called mopping up uh, in Mariupol. So let's uh, move on to Azovstal and, and uh, Reuters here. Russia tells Ukrainian forces to surrender the plant by noon. Yeah, so the, the, this is the second or third surrender, uh, right. scheduled surrender. This is a good aerial shot here. Let's give people an idea of what we're looking at here. This is Reuters. Um, this is the Azovstal industrial sector there uh, in the sort of the industry port sector that, of the city. Underneath there, down eight stories, is underground facilities, uh, I believe, that were built during the Soviet era right. uh, to withstand uh, nuclear attacks and so forth. And this is where the last holdouts are. Uh, for the various Ukrainian uh, brigades and battalions. Uh, and uh, estimates vary, Mike. It's underground. We don't know exactly how many people are down there. Uh, militants claim uh, that there are something like uh, 1,200 uh, and 500 wounded, 120 civilians. Again, you can't confirm any of these numbers. Nobody's seen them. They can't do a head count. Right. So you can only take the press reports uh, at face value at the moment. Mm. But we think that there's also uh, VIPs down there, i.e. NATO intelligence officers that are down there. That explains the big scramble and hoo-ha with Emmanuel Macron, you remember, yep. a couple of weeks ago, desperate to open up a, quote, green corridor uh, to get out uh, the, the people there, what they want to get out. It seems like they're uh, NATO uh, specialists that are there. There was also three failed rescue attempts and multiple Ukrainian helicopters were downed trying to uh, extract or exfiltrate these VIPs uh, out of Azovstal. So there could be some of those uh, still, there. still there as well. So um, I'm sure there's going to be some horse trading behind the scenes, but, you know, 
what uh, what have they got to trade? That's the big question. Yeah. So it's they're certainly not going to trade uh, anything that's of strategic value. Uh, I'm talking about Russia in this right. case. Right. But so as of stall plant, this is where the holdout is. And so the latest breaking news here. So uh, we we heard yesterday Putin is calling off the assault, the final assault uh, to clear out the as of stall plant. You have to remember. We'll show you a map of of the area in a minute, but literally Russia has full control over Mariupol. Mm. Think of just a very small area down by the port area, very small uh, area that we showed you the aerial shot there. That's it, that's where the holdouts are. Right. So Mariupol is, is finished, it's done and dusted. Uh, the only thing that's happening now is in negotiations between those who are down there and the, and the Russian Federation uh, armed forces. So they're not coming out willingly uh, there's, there have been so far, you know, 1,200 have surrendered already mm. from this area. So Russia has taken, and they've, they've surrendered, they've gone, they're being fed and watered, as we'll show you in a, in, in a little bit. So, well, that that little piece of video uh, that's doing the rounds at the moment uh, had Putin speaking to uh, Sergei Shogu, who's the defense minister, of course, and saying very clearly that uh, he hopes that people will uh, leave uh, this plant and uh, they'll get any medical assistance they require and uh, and he said that they'll be looked after so so uh, <clears throat> well do you think they will yeah well all the all the indications are that they are being looked after there's plenty no, but of... do you think they will uh, walk out or uh, will they they stay to the to the end I don't know well back to this report here this is RT this isn't no Russian disinformation there's actually more factual information here than in a lot of the other Western mm. papers. This is why we're using this as a reference. Uh, but, but, but they're saying that Putin doesn't want to risk lives, as the, mm. a la your intelligence report at the beginning. Right. Of, of course, going down under eight stories, um, why, why risk any soldier's life at this point when they're totally pinned down? Right. And they're, they're, <laughs> they could use bunker busters and things like that, but they're not going to do that. Um, there could be civilians down there. Russia's taking that into consideration. So here is the final card. Uh, this is one of the uh, interesting characters that has emerged uh, underground there. This is ma ma uh, Major Sergei uh, Vol Volinia, and he's from the 36th Separate Marine Brigade. Uh, and so the Western media are running all of these heartstring stories now uh, that the militants are trapped down there and they're they're being held, uh, pinned down by the uh, evil Russians, right? Uh, but the thing is, they've been given opportunities to surrender, and 1,200 of them have already uh, surrendered uh, and walked out. And as long as they drop their arms, they can come out. Now, we go back to this uh, person here. He's saying that they're victims. Um, and they not only that, he's requiring, Mike, uh, he's saying there's 500 wounded down there. Why aren't you sending them up? Firstly, and he, he's claiming they're civilians. We believe they are, these are members, uh, family members of militants as well. This is a hostage situation. Right. This is a hostage situation. If our government in America, for instance, will look at the Waco siege as a hostage situation in the Waco compound, you know how they how they treated it. This is a hostage situation. So he, this is what he's saying here. We appeal and plead to the world leaders to help us. We ask them to use the procedure of extraction and take us to a territory of a third-party state. Mm. He's, they're doing all these negotiations. This is like a diehard film, Mike. Uh, he's like trying to negotiate his way out of Nakatomi Plaza or something. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane. So we've got a video of uh, Sergey here. Uh, let's take a look at, uh, we've got subtitles, I believe, on this. Yeah. But let's take a look at what uh, he's saying here from uh, just two days ago. 
це звернення до світу. Це може бути нашим останнім зверненням. В нас, можливо, залишились інші дні або години. Угрупування противника десятки разів перебільшує нас. Вони мають панування у повітрі, в артилерії, в угрупуваннях, які діють на суходолі, техніками та танками. Ми ведемо оборону на одному об'єкті, на заводі, де знаходяться військові Маріубільського організовані та цивільні особи, які потрапили в пастку війни. Ми звертаємось до світових лідерів допомогти нам. Ми звертаємось з проханням засувати в нас процедуру екстракшн та вивезти нас на територію третьої держави. Маріупольський гарнізон військових з нами більше ніж 500 поранених бійців та сотні цивільних осіб, серед яких є жінки та діти. Ми просимо надати нам безпеку на території третьої держави. Дякую. This is insane. This is insane. This is, so the, the, the Western press, are, this is the combatants as victims, right. basically. And so Zelensky is saying, um, you know, there's no surrender. You know, he's not giving surrender orders to them. So if they come up and surrender without his orders, then they're guilty, according to Ukrainian military law, of treason. And that could they could face the death penalty for that. Okay. But so Zelensky is saying no surrender, but if, if they're killed, if any of them are killed, there's no peace talks. I mean, what's going on here? The, uh, the Ukrainians are completely out of sorts. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, it, it, it really begs the question of, like, who's in charge? Well, that sounds a bit desperation, perhaps, creeping in there. Yeah, yeah. So he, here's this was released here, this next uh, uh, bit of video here. Take a look at this. These are, this is the video they, they released to say, this is what's underground with them. Okay, this is really sick and twisted. Yeah. Uh, this is a hostage situation. The, the mainstream press in the West and politicians who are ignoring this and casually ignoring the civilian hostage element, because these are human shields, right? They're, they're casually ignoring this. And this is a huge crime on the part of our media and our political leaders to try to turn a blind eye to this. Mm. This is crazy, okay? And to, to try to garner sympathy for these militants who are or soldiers, whoever they are, if they're Azov battalions or regulars, uh, it, you know, it, this is kind of like a cult situation, right? Um, isn't it? So, so let's, it's sad, but anyway, uh, let's take a look here at the real story. This is what's really going on. Uh, we've got video footage here. These are civilians walking out of the perimeter of as, as So as Russia has cleared out all the periphery, uh, so, uh, firing points and snipers, the civilians are now safe to leave. What does that tell you? That tells you that they were being targeted by snipers. Mm. And all the reports we're seeing from Patrick Lancaster, uh, who's on the ground there, and others are corroborating that very, and the eyewitness accounts are saying that they're being shot at if they tried to leave. Right. Now that all those Ukrainian forces have been cleared out, people are walking out. So it doesn't, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out what's going on. Let's look at this footage here. <laughs>
So that, that's what's basically going on. Right. So a, a lot of civilians are walking out from the different uh, compounds in that plant. Right. But there's still people being held underground with these militants. So what, you know, how are we going to deal with that situation? I mean, the international community should step up and, and at least encourage Zelensky to tell them to surrender. Otherwise, it's going to turn into what? Some kind of an incident where... Uh, well, we're already seeing the uh, footage or the... the the headlines in the mainstream press this morning of mass graves beside this, this, uh, you know, and they're showing the satellite photographs before and after the mass graves have been dug. So they're preparing for that. And, and they're not saying who the mass graves, or who, who shot the people to put them in the mass graves. Right. That's casually being left out. It's right. inferred that it's Russia, right? So, so let's, let, let's, let's put the, the, this into perspective. This is the former Ukrainian prime minister who gave this video address and it's very, very important that people watch this and listen closely. This is the former uh, Ukrainian PM, uh, Mykola Azarov. And uh, listen to this statement, and this, it's subtitled as well. But, right. uh, go ahead. Убивались инакомыслящие, просто убивались. Запрещались политические партии, запрещались каналы, все средства массовой информации. Это было до конфликта. А когда конфликт начался, они посчитали, что у них развязаны руки. И тот сейчас беззакония, разгул беззакония, когда, например, члена парламента Дениса Киреева И, кстати, он был членом переговорной группы. Просто взяли, застрелили и тело выбросили на улицу. Вот так. СБУ арестовало его без всяких на то оснований. В процессе, видимо, пыток или что-то, значит, они переусердствовали. Ну, выстрелили в голову, а тело выбросили на улицу перед зданием Печерского суда. Это центр Киева. Вот. Ну вот, когда Зеленский выступал в парламентах, различных европейских стран ему аплодировали, а вот спросили бы этих депутатов, которые аплодировали там в Италии или там где он там выступал, в Германии. Нормально это явление, когда члена парламента могут просто без суда и следствия застрелить, а тело выбросить. Например, арестованы сейчас все абсолютно значит, политики или политологи, или журналисты, которые выступали Ну, с критикой власти. Например, арестована известная правозащитница Елена Петровна Бережная. Она, наверное, такая единственная из всех украинских правозащитников, которая не боялась этого режима, ездила по различным странам, выступала в парламентах, рассказывала о нацизме в Украине, выступала на заседании Совета Безопасности ООН, Бундестаге, выступал в ОБСЕ, ну вот несмотря на ее известность, такую как правозащитница. То же самое СБУ взяла, арестовала, и вот она сейчас сидит в Лукьяновском СИЗО. Арестовали, например, такую известную журналистку, кстати, бывшую журналистку Радио Свобода Анну Герман, вместе с мужем. Ну, муж вообще никакого отношения ни к политике, ни к журналистике не имеет. Видимо, чтобы ей не скучно было в тюрьме, значит, вот и мужа арестовали. Никто даже голоса против не поднимает. Вот это абсолютно нормально. Арестованы такие известные журналисты, как, например, Юрий Дудкин, Дмитрий Джангиров, 
Ну, я могу дальше перечень перечислять. Кто успел убежать, тот убежал, уехать за рубеж. А кто не убежал, сидят в тюрьме. Вот это, вот это, да, европейский парламент абсолютно не волнует. У Зеленского руки по, по, по локоть в крови, потому что используется метод, когда население используется вооруженными частями, по его же команде, естественно, в качестве заложников. Отсюда такие большие жертвы среди мирного населения. Now we'll talk about Gonzalo Lira and, and also the journalists that he had put their names out saying right. these people. Uh, we personally know one of these uh, journalists in Odessa who's been abducted um, and detained uh, indefinitely by the uh, SBU. Uh, a moderate journalist, not particularly uh, partisan, but not, not uh, too partisan for the government. Okay, so this is, these are all the reports we're getting. So our governments are painting Zelensky The Ukrainians is champions of democracy. The reality is probably the diametric opposite of that. Okay, this is really an out of control uh, situation with this uh, government. So there's a couple of resources we'll point people to. Take a look at this article, excellent uh, piece here up on Mint Press News. Testimony reveals Zelensky's secret police plot to liquidate opposition figure uh, Anatoly Sharif. Now, Prime Minister Azarov there was talking about Denis Kariv. He was on the negotiations team, uh, and they arrested him and then shot, tortured him, shot him, and threw him out in the street. Okay, that's the, the you know, because he was too sympathetic to the Russians. Uh, so here is this story here about Anatoly Sharif. This is a harrowing story. This is well documented. Okay, now let's look at uh, this excellent piece here uh, by the Gray Zone. Uh, and this is one less traitor, Zelensky oversees campaign of assassination, kidnapping, uh, and torture of uh, political uh, opposition there. So if you look at this article, this is on the gray zone. It's a stunning uh, compilation here. And it just talks about all the different uh, stages of this, uh, where he's ordering rivals to be arrested. They're being picked up. They're being detained. Their families, in some cases, are, don't know if they're detained. Uh, torture, enforced in disappearances, and so forth. Kiev officials endorse assassinating Ukrainian mayors uh, for negotiating with the Russians. This sort of thing is happening all the time. So this is very reminiscent, Mike, of Central American death squads and those sort of juntas being backed by the U.S. over the years in the 1950s, 60s, uh, and 70s. There's some, uh, obviously some gruesome uh, material in this here. Uh, but th so th this, these things are well documented. Okay, these aren't these aren't things that you can't find out. So presumably, uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, opposition leader, you can see he was beat up, he was abducted, beat up, and he's being held in detention here. This is a high-profile politician. Okay, this is what the Zelensky government, with the full backing of Britain, of the United States government, of all the NATO members, of Germany, fully supported. They fully support and back all of this. Look at this. Uh, Snatch Squad took this opposition blogger here who has a family and kids. He's handicapped. He's disabled. He was uh, taken away a while ago. That's Gonzalo Lira who uh, had originally uh, tweeted that one out there to raise the alarm. This is just like the tip of the iceberg. There's so many of these cases. This is an MMA fighter. He was tortured and put on camera. And these are gypsies that are being tied to lampposts. 
out in the in, left out in, in, in outdoors. I have to say, Patrick, we're going to be talking about Robert Jenrick in a, in a couple of minutes, MP, and some of the comments that he made in uh, the House of Commons. And really, when we hear, see what he had to say, it has to be seen in this context. Yes, it absolutely has. Um, and, and more shocking than that, you know, they're talking about, they're throwing this war crimes uh, uh, term around very casually yes. uh, by Western governments. Well, uh, some of the Russian soldiers have been tortured and then assass uh, murdered, executed yes. in the most heinous way. And in some cases, here's an SBU snatch squad picking up civilians. Uh, that's a Russian soldier that was tortured and killed, I believe. Now, the soldiers then take the phones and they then uh, harass the parents after they've killed the Rush, after they've executed the Russian soldier. This is a Ukrainian soldier here, funded by NATO, armed by NATO, and he is uh, basically trolling the parents of the soldier that they just executed, tortured and executed, and having a good laugh about it, recording it, and then sending it out on social media. Yeah. So this is happening quite a lot. There's no problem with this. There's no objection to this in the West. Uh, Twitter doesn't seem to have much of a problem with it either. Twitter supports it 100%. Uh, it's, there's some very horrific stuff. We apologize for the imagery. They've blacked out some of the things that maybe you don't want to see there. But if you want to uh, see the original links to this, just go to the gray zone. That was a summary execution out on the street yeah, yeah. and then a celebration on TikTok or uh, Telegram or something like that. So Ukrainian officials present woman tortured and killed by Azov as a victim of Russia. They even took one of Patrick Lancaster's videos. This woman had a swastika burned in her back by Ukrainian military and Azov battalions. And the, the, uh, the main some of these Western media outlets, NGOs are taking it and saying that Russia did it. Mm. When in fact, it's very easy to find out that it was Ukrainian forces that did it. This Max Blumenthal, uh, one of the co-authors of that right. article. I, I, I do encourage people to go see that. So in that context, Mike, we'll bring on the president here who famously said, you don't need experience to be president. Uh, no kidding. So we've got a video here of, of, of Zelensky. This is a pretty shocking a short clip here. Let's roll this. Степан Бендера – герой для какого-то процента украинцев. И это нормально, и это классно. Это один из тех людей, который защищал свободу Украины. Да. So that uh, that was uh, Zelensky basically saying Bandera is a cool guy. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's cool that we have people to support Stefan Bandera, the Waffen SS, uh, Hitler's right hand man uh, during the pogroms. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. So anybody that's saying that there's not a Nazi problem uh, in Ukraine or that it's some sort of fringe thing or it's no, it's it's deeply deeply baked into institutions into the political system, into the military. So Zelensky was popping off uh, about a lot of things. And uh, so Sergey Lavrov was interviewed by India Today. This is one of India's biggest uh, channels. I believe this was in Istanbul a couple of days ago, early this week. Let's listen to what, uh, so uh, regarding the nuclear weapons thing, Zelensky right. saying we want to get nuclear weapons. Here's, here's uh, Sergey Lavrov, Russian foreign minister's response. President Zelensky said that uh, Russia plans to use tactical nuclear weapons. He says many things. And depends depends, depends on what he drinks or what he, or, or what he smokes. He says many things. Okay. So, so this is the hero. This is the guy, the man of the moment. 
the, the king of, prince of democracy, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. So who are we dealing with here? Who are governments uh, dealing with? Is this the person that the fate of the world, World War III, the future of Europe, it, it rests in the hands of this for this, now, it seems to, yes. This person, pretty incredible. So just a quick look, just to, to give you a little bit of an update. This is what, what it looks like right now. This is the uh, pretty much one of the most accurate maps you'll find, I think, south front, pretty accurate, pretty reliable. This is the Donbass, so we're zooming in here on the Donbass. You've got uh, Lugansk and Donetsk. You've got Mariupol down at the bottom. Let's take a closer look at Mariupol, and you can see very close geographically to Donetsk. So that's that is Donbass, Mariupol. That's part of Donbass. Okay, so that's that's what the situation looks like. The the orange areas that this is controlled by the Russian armed forces. The blue areas in the corner is Kiev. All of the lines are moving west, Mike. They're all moving west. Now, how could this be, Mike? Because we've been told that Russia's losing the war. Oh, they're t completely demoralized. Apparently, they have no <laughs> no enthusiasm at all. They're, yeah, their 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 supply lines are, yeah. are are falling apart. All this stuff. So, how are they how are they winning in such grand fashion? Well, look, the gag is up. I think a lot of the smart people, even in in Whitehall and in Washington, are admitting now they've been running a basically information campaign about the true status of the war. So let's go to the uh, the deep state's in-house newsletter and see what they have to say. The Times of London. Uh, this was front page today. Believe it or not, front page. Ukraine war revitalized. Russia can still win. Western intelligence warns. So this is a bit of admission here. It's saying that oh guys, get ready. Um, everything we've been telling you is a complete porky uh -huh. uh, for the last six weeks. And actually, no, we, as we said on this show, Mike, six weeks ago, Russia won in the first four days. Right. Uh, tactically, strategically, from a military point of view, they won in the first four days. The amount of territory they took and then controlled the airspace, there's not a lot you can, you can do, no matter how many weapons you flood in there, uh, militarily speaking, and this is why we're producing uh, media reports about uh, how uh, Putin is looking haggard and, and worn down. And uh, so it's a bit of desperation again creeping in. I think so. I think so. So this, here's a little bit of a dose of reality here. Uh, we'll give you another little dose of reality here. This is, this is a, a general Western, Central, Southeastern, you know, regional uh, colored map here of of so Russia has uh, operational control over the Donbass. Of course, Crimea is part of the Russian Federation. Sorry, but it is. Uh, so let's look here. So they're pushing now this way, uh, southeastern Ukraine, and towards the Dnieper River. And here is what this is CNN, by the way, reported this. Acting commander of the Central Military District, Major General Rustam uh, Menekev, and he says Russia. We're paraphrasing here uh, from the translation, but uh, Russia aims to take full control of Donbass and southern Ukraine during the current phase of the military operation. Do you know what that means, Mike? That means that when they take control, those areas may not go they back, go back yes. to the Ukraine. So we're just giving you a to get ready, brace yourself, because the map is going to change. The, and what we said as well in previous programs, the longer the West drags this out, and floods the place with weapons, the, 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 less, the less likely Ukraine's going to be able to secure its territory, not because of Russia, but because the people uh, in those Russian enclaves may feel more comfortable or may trust Moscow more than they trust 
the uh, the actor uh, in NATO in Kiev. Yes. Simpler. Uh, now, on Monday, uh, we mentioned Gonzalo Lira uh, a second ago, but, uh, or sorry, on Wednesday's program, we were talking about uh, Gonzalo Lira and the fact that he had disappeared. Uh, there was some speculation, if you remember, that uh, uh, he something much worse than disappearance had happened to him. Uh, and, uh, well, we were questioning that because there was no particular uh, evidence of it. But, uh, look, one of the people that we were talking about on Wednesday was this person, uh, Sarah Ashton Carrillo, uh, and uh, we got a response uh, from Sarah, uh, who said, Hi, Sarah Ashton Carrillo here. I've just watched your UK column show from the uh, 20th of 4th. Uh, for the record, I've never been nor ever would be an FBI informant. Uh, and I've never been nor ever would be a Nazi, a National Socialist or any other member or adherent of any far right doctrine. Uh, yes, I've clearly tra traveled many areas and have been uh, in states of unrest is what uh, Sarah Ashton Carrillo had to say. So let's just remember uh, the tweets that were being pushed out by this person. Uh, incredible news from Kharkiv uh, reports that Chilean Russian spy Real Gonzalo Lira had be has been captured in Kharkiv. Uh, he is allegedly a Russian saboteur posing as a journalist to destroy uh, Ukraine. Now, the allegedly uh, is put in the second line there with respect to being a Russian saboteur, but there is no allegedly in the first uh, claim that he is a Chilean Russian spy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there you go. Congrats to the Russian security services. Uh, and uh, then, of course, we also highlighted this tweet here uh, saying, excellent news, the Kremlin-paid spy was spreading lies about Ukraine even before the war. A shame for Chileans and real journalists well-deserved. Patrick, you're next. Uh, and of course, referring to Patrick Lancaster. Patrick Lancaster. Uh, and uh, Sarah Ashton Carrillo then responding to that saying, yes, Patrick must go. Now, I can't see that that could possibly mean anything other than, well, maybe maybe that maybe Sarah means Patrick needs to be thrown out of Ukraine or something. I don't know. But, sure. Well, so but Sarah Ashton Carrillo, formerly Michael Carrillo, right? Yes. Uh, basically is embedded, uh, claims that uh, they're embedded with the Ukrainian military and would probably be at, uh, very close to the uh, Ukrainian police or security services. Uh, they have probably uh, at liaisons not too far away. So uh, what's going on here? Uh, is this person an operative? Are they a journalist? Uh, I believe they've stepped over the line and cannot rightly call themselves. You can't call yourself a journalist when you're, a, when you're embedded uh, in this fashion with a foreign military. And B, when you're, you seem to be working the public relations channels to get people picked up uh, and disappeared, in this case, uh, like Gonzalo Lira, who knows, without the public uh, uh, campaign, what would be Gonzalo's fate if nobody cared or paid attention. Now, Patrick Lancaster, is, uh, he's been a resident of Donbass for quite some time, I believe. He's a former U.S. Navy veteran. Um, he is a serious journalist. Um, and I would venture to say, unlike uh, Sarah Ashton Carrillo, seems to be doing a little more than journalism uh, in this situation. Um, well, we're very glad to be able to say that uh, uh, Gonzalo Lira um, has reappeared um, and was speaking to the, uh, the Duran this morning. Uh, so we have a little excerpt from this. Uh, let's have a listen to this. Uh, what day is it? Friday, April 20th. Friday already. Yeah, we... April 22nd, uh, 2022, uh, I'm uh, in Kharkov, um, I'm okay. Uh, I just wanna say that um, I'm, I'm back online 
and um, I'm here with Alex Christoforou, and um, I just want to say uh, that I'm fine physically. I'm a little rattled. I was um, picked up by the uh, SBU on uh, Friday, April 15th at a little after 1 p.m. local time. Uh, there seems to have been like a lot of interest in my case, which is wonderful. Thank you. But there are a lot of other people who are, frankly, more deserving of the attention. I've highlighted them in my Twitter feed, the uh, real Gonzalo Lira. Those people matter more because we don't know where some of them are. Some of them are, have passed away, but uh, well, some of them were killed. But the other ones, we don't know where they are. And so they matter more. I think that's, that says a lot about the man that he made that comment at the end. Yeah, well, he did, he did tweet out those names before uh, he was picked up, and he did, he did that for, uh, out of compassion for them uh, to help maybe raise awareness about these people. People are getting picked up and disappeared. We have, I've listened to so many eyewitness testimonies about this. People in areas that are Ukrainian-controlled, afraid to speak even in public, about anything related to anything political because uh, they're afraid of getting snitched on and getting picked up or some, something like this. Right. So it's a really, really dark um, sort of atmosphere. Um, right. So um, the question then, Patrick, is uh, who is Graham Phillips, to mention another person who is uh, uh, speaking out in Ukraine at the moment? Well, well, he, Graham Phillips is absolutely 100% as far as we can see in anybody, an independent journalist. Um, he is from Nottingham. He's British. Uh, he, I believe, has uh, family connections, or possibly, I don't know the whole story, married to Ukrainian, possibly, and we might have to confirm that. But uh, Graham Phillips is uh, on the ground uh, in Ukraine, and he's doing some pretty um, impressive uh, uh, videography and reportage. Uh, and so he's caught a little bit of attention from the, uh, the British press and the British government. Um, they don't like the fact that he's there uh, doing interviews and filming and doing things. So this is the Telegraph here. Who is Graham Phillips, the ex-Whitehall civil servant, now pushing Russian propaganda, accused of being a modern-day Lord Haha? That's got very dire implications, yes. by the way. It's not a joke. Uh, and the, this is Lord Haha, the Nazi sympathizer who I believe was executed yes. uh, in the Second World War. The journalist has been pushing videos denying evidence of war crimes in Ukraine. No, he's actually pushing videos documenting war crimes in Ukraine. It's just that Graham and Patrick Lancaster are documenting war crimes being done by the Ukrainian side. This is why they're being attacked by all these so-called journalists uh, and people in NATO countries who don't like the facts that they're reporting. It is as simple as that. And this is the danger of pulling media outlets off the air, because then what happens if the side that uh, NATO is supporting is committing war crimes? Are they going to get documented? Where are all the journalists? Well, RT's footage is uh, actual forensic evidence in that case. Will that be admissible in international tribunal? Of course it will, but it will just be disappeared and, and made invisible to the viewers in the West. And that is for political reasons, not because of uh, international law or war crimes. Uh, well, Graham Phillips, uh, well, he featured in Parliament uh, a day or two ago, and uh, Robert Jenrick was the man who decided that he was going to uh, feature him. Uh, he said, my constituent, Aidan Aslin, has served in the Ukrainian Armed Forces for four years. Last week, he was captured by the Russian army in Mariupol. Uh, yesterday, a video emerged of my constituent handcuffed, physically injured, and being interviewed under duress for propaganda purposes. Uh, does my right honourable friend, that's the uh, Prime Minister he was speaking to, 
agree that this is a flagrant breach of the Geneva Convention, uh, that treating any prisoner of war in that manner is illegal, uh, that the interviewer Graham Phillips is in danger of prosecution for war crimes, and that any online platform such as YouTube that hosts propaganda videos of that kind should take them down immediately. So that's what uh, Jenrick said in Parliament. Uh, but The Sun then echoed uh, the Telegraph's headline there, uh, Ho Ho Fury, Britain's new Lord Ho Ho should be stripped of his UK passport for pumping out Russian propaganda. Uh, and they quote Jenrick again here, saying uh, Tory MP Robert Jenrick fumed by degrading a prisoner of war in this grotesque propaganda video. Phillips is exposing himself to war crimes prosecution and revocation of his British passport. Well, that's, very, that's a very interesting statement there, because as you've said, uh, Phillips is Nottingham, born and bred. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he is not a dual citizen. He is not a naturalized citizen. He is a British citizen. Uh, and at this point in time, uh, Patrick, I'll just mention uh, this uh, article in the New Statesman, because of course there is legislation going through Parliament at the moment, which uh, is relevant, uh, because uh, this is talking about the uh, Nationality and Borders Bill. Uh, and Priti Patel is pushing this through. Now she is, uh, well, the, the New Statesman is saying here very clearly that this is, uh, this puts the UK in, uh, absolutely in the lead in the breadth of the scope of the removal of citizen, citizenship from, from people. Um, so at the moment, as, as the law stands at this point in time, the Home Secretary can strip any dual national or naturalized citizen of their nationality. Uh, for example, uh, if it's conducive to the public good. Um, but what the new legislation will do is that, that will allow the government to strip people of their nationality without uh, informing them of the fact so they then will, won't know that this has happened to them uh, until they try to travel on a passport, for example. But the point is they won't get the opportunity to appeal because, of course, there's a limitation, a time limitation on, on the appeals process. So if you don't know, then you can't appeal. And so that, that's much more likely to make it a permanent thing. Um, so what is Jenrick saying here? Is he saying that, that in fact, there's going to be an extension of this to people that are actually full British citizens, uh, people that are, were born here with full British citizenship? I'm not sure. I think we need to know the answer to that because my suspicion is that this particular piece of legislation um, is, is the start of a slippery slope. Well, it, it started with Shamima Begin, or maybe even before that. As sure, well. and, and we saw all the all the big headlines, and it was decided because that's a particularly controversial case. That's designed it, it to generate motive. support for yeah. for this kind of thing. But yeah. if if this is therefore being extended to, to British citizens, full British citizens who happen to be pr uh, pursuing a narrative which is counter to the the British government's narrative, and therefore that uh entitles the british government to remove their citizenship that is a pretty significant development because jenrick made some statements that might actually not be true he said that uh uh the treatment of aiden that he 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 inferred that he was he had been roughed up yes uh and then forced to be interviewed and that that's somehow a, a violation of geneva war uh, uh conventions sure so uh, the question is is aiden aslan uh is he a mercenary because mercenaries uh, as far as I'm, uh, I'm aware, are not covered in the Geneva Conventions. Right. They're not regular forces. So then it comes down to a legal determination of uh, how you define a mercenary. So why don't we just go to the horse's mouth? And is he a mercenary or is he a, a Ukrainian citizen, uh, this British gentleman, Aidan uh, Aslan? Or is he, is, is he a Ukrainian regular? What is he? 
Is he a war tourist? He said he served in Syria with the Kurds a couple of years ago, so they're jumping from war zone to war zone. That looks to me like it could be a mercenary, uh, at least a soldier of uh, fortune, yes. or a war tourist. Let's, uh, let's look at the Graham Phillips video. Why don't, we, why don't we watch a couple of minutes and listen to, and you tell us in the chat box, in the comment sections, what you think, if, if you think Graham Phillips is guilty of a war crime, please, by all means, let us know in the comments in the chat box. Here we go. So anyway, we've got the camera running here. I was going to look at that. I'd like to just say a couple of words that uh, filming prisoners of war, although Aiden is, I will say this, as it is, a mercenary. Uh, there are protocols governing that as per the Geneva Convention, I shall be adhering not only to them, uh, given that Aiden is, as I say, a mercenary, those don't necessarily apply, but because we're all good, nice, polite people here, we shall adhere to not only the protocols and the covenants of the Geneva Convention, uh, but also this will be uploaded to YouTube, so the applicable YouTube guidance. Uh, Aiden, we'd just like to confirm that you're speaking of your own will. There's not going to be any pressure or anything like that. You are. Uh, feds, waters, uh, basically you agree to... Yeah, I, I agree to this, I asked for this. So this is of your own will? Yeah. And there's not going to be any coercion, your answers should be taken as your truthful representation That's of your actual position. There's going to be no exertion of any coercion or anything, anything like that. Uh, we'd like to pass on in the first case uh, uh, that your family have also been concerned about your sister Shannon Tynegate. Yeah. And so your mother is it Angela? Yeah, Angela. Uh, have also been very concerned uh, about you. So that's been in the in the media a lot. From my side, to say that you're a you're a lucky guy. I mean, this is basically a week in captivity, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'd say lucky, to say the least. Um, probably extremely lucky. Um, to be alive considering the situation that happened in Mariupol. I mean really, basically, if you look at the, I don't know if you've seen the videos, I know you've been quite active online, uh, but can you describe any of the videos you've seen of when Russian soldiers have been taken captive by Ukrainian soldiers and what's happened to them? From the videos I've seen online of, of uh, Russian soldiers being captured, um, Ukrainian soldiers haven't adhered to the Geneva Conventions. Right. Um, there's been a lot of war crimes that have taken place, like from what I've seen. Um, a, a lot of it's down to uh, the, the Nazi groups like Azov Battalion and Right Sector, um, and a lot, a lot of nationalists as well, um, from what, what I can see. So, you understand, let's, I mean, let's get down to the nitty gritty. We were talking about absolute barbarism. We're talking about videos of Russian soldiers, servicemen killed by stabbing them in the eyes, tortured, mutilated, slaughtered yeah. by your colleagues, your comrades, Aiden. I mean, come on. I, I don't promote this. Like, if I ever saw anyone doing anything like that, I'd try to intervene because first and foremost, like, just, just because it's the enemy, they shouldn't be treated any less than once once they drop their rifle and then that's them finished. Um, and I think that people that do do these crimes, they, they should be punished to the fullest extent. Um, which, with the Ukrainian military, I doubt they're going to even care about it. I mean, we're talking about, 
I would say there's no words to describe people like that, but we're talking about Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, I'm going to use a few choice words to describe them. Animals, yeah. scumbags, barbarians. Your comrades, Aiden, what are we talking about here? How has this ended up that you're on that side? I, I made a stupid choice. I easily uh, misread the information and joined the wrong side. Okay, so 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 that that's it. People can make their decision on on uh, what they think of that. Yeah, uh, some people have already commented. You know, Graham Phillips covered himself, and the the key thing is there is Aiden wanted access to media. Right. Uh, he wanted access to media. They proposed a, a swap with Viktor Medvedchuk. If Zelensky would hand over Medvedchuk, then uh, the Russians could hand over uh, Aiden, and I think his colleague uh, Sean Pinner, right, another British uh, um, soldier of fortune, as it were. So, you know, you decide what you think is uh, the situation there, and again, refer to the Geneva Conventions for specifics on the legality of that. We wish our politicians and mainstream media journalists would do the same. Yes. We, we encourage them to do the same. Uh, so on the, on the issue of uh, deportations, of asylum, uh, Priti Patel here is uh, featured in this article by Jonathan Cook at Middle East Eye. And here's the headline, Mike. Israel's fortress state is the model for the UK's new asylum uh, policy. Here, Jonathan Cook, great journalist, one of the, one of the best uh, based in the Middle East. Uh, and here's what he said. When Israel began de deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda eight years ago, it did so in secret. Johnson's government has copied that scheme, but has done so brazenly to show that post-Brexit Britain is the most hostile corner of Europe for refugees. So this is an Israeli policy that was copied by Britain. Is anyone surprised at that? I mean, so a lot of people aren't aware of this, and uh, Cook uh, outlines the story very, very well and goes into depth um, on how this policy came to be in, in Israel. So the, th this is interesting, the fortress, uh, the fortress state. Yes. So. Yes, okay. Well, look, uh, on Wednesday, we also mentioned that uh, despite Boris's party gate troubles, he was still intending to head off to uh, India. Uh, and uh, well, here he is. Uh, he's arrived in India yesterday. He's met uh, Madhuri Modi today. Um, and he's looking particularly fetching there. Uh, Patrick, I think that's uh, a vast improvement to his hairstyle. He likes doing the fancy dress uh, uh, Boris does. So, yes. Yes. So what's he doing? He, he said uh, today that uh, they have agreed a new and expanded defense and security, part security partnership with India, uh, a decades-long commitment that will not only forge tighter bonds between us and so on, uh, but they're also talking about uh, an India-specific open general export license for trade uh, and building on the co uh, collaboration between Oxford AstraZeneca and the Serum Institute, uh, which vaccinated more than a billion people against COVID, including Boris himself, he said. Uh, I have the Indian jab in my arm, he said, uh, and uh, the power of good did me and thanks to India uh, and so on. So uh, a, a bunch of uh, uh, economic uh, ties uh, announced as well. But as far as the defense ties go, uh, they specifically mentioned OneWeb. Uh, and we've uh, mentioned OneWeb before. This is the uh, satellite uh, company that's in sort of, well, do we say that they're in uh, in uh, uh, competition with uh, with Elon Musk uh, for low-Earth orbit satellites. They're attempting to put swarms of low-Earth orbit satellites uh, into orbit. But why is this important for Boris? Well, because OneWeb was bought by the British government a few years ago uh, and took them out of Chapter 11 bankruptcy. 
Uh, and uh, so why? Because uh, Britain wants to uh, replace the Skynet uh, communications satellites, uh, and uh, they're currently run by Airbus. I believe the next generation will be also run by Airbus, but then what happens after that? Uh, and I just want to remind everybody what Alex Sharma said in 2020, talking about having access to our own global fleet of satellites has the potential to connect people worldwide, providing fast UK-backed broadband from the Shetlands to the Sahara from pole to pole. So this implies that OneWeb is merely in competition with, uh, uh, with Starlink and uh, Elon Musk Starlink, uh, but not quite, because then if we bring uh, Ben Wallace on and remind ourselves what he said, uh, we will ensure that we embed dual use at the heart of our capability management process, considering how we can share defense space capabilities and outputs. Uh, this is uh, the OneWeb satellite swarms uh, will not just be used for domestic uh, uh, commercial uh, civilian broadband, but will also be used for military and intelligence uh, data and communications as well. So, so that OneWeb announcement is, is quite important because they're saying that uh, they've signed an historic contract for satellite launches at the New Space India Limited, the commercial arm of the Indian Space Research Organization. Um, so India will be helping to launch those. Dual use, we see that term popping up a lot, don't we? With uh, defense, with tech, with uh, big pharma, uh, with biological research facilities, dual use. We're going to see more of that term, I, I predict. Yes. Um, now, the, another thing that uh, Boris uh, let slip while he was in India, we just put him back on screen here, is uh, I can say we are currently training Ukrainians in Poland in the use of anti-aircraft defense and actually in the UK in the use of armored vehicles. So he is uh, admitting that uh, Ukrainians in the UK for training. Uh, Good O'Harry, his uh, spokesman, then went on to say, to clarify a little bit, he said, uh, we're simply working together with our allies to give Ukraine the best tools to defend themselves. It's only sensible that they get requisite training to make the best use of it. So this is uh, basically about uh, uh, the, the arms and material that we're sending Ukraine at the moment. Uh, they need to know how to drive the various uh, uh, armored vehicles and so on. And so they're getting trained on that in the UK. Any Azov battalions getting trained in the UK? I well, we don't, we don't know. Uh, we don't know whether there are or not. It has not been announced. Any Nazi-affiliated uh, soldiers? Who knows? We're just asking. Be interesting to know, wouldn't it? Uh, well, it would. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, well, Rishi Sunak is in uh, New York. Uh, here he is uh, giving a, a quick briefing here. Uh, and what's he talking about? Well, the subtitles aren't there for some reason. But anyway, he is uh, he was been over meeting the G7, the G20, uh, and uh, meeting the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, to talk about uh, how they're going to fund uh, further uh, arms and material to uh, to Ukraine. Um, so he called on uh, international partners, he says, to go further and faster in their economic and humanitarian support for Ukraine. Um, and uh, and then they announced this. Uh, this is the uh, IMF Executive Board has approved establishment of the Resilience and Sustainability Trust. Now, what's interesting here, uh, Patrick, is that in the actual IMF press release, this is just a, a reposting of the IMF press release, uh, there's no particular mention of Ukraine in it. But Relief Web here has decided to put this in their Ukraine sec section. And the reason for that, of course, is because this was announced at the point that uh, Rishi and the rest were over with the IMF to discuss how they were going to continue funding uh, the uh, the Ukraine and and their their defence in inverted commas. Um, so what Rishi Sunak has announced is uh, they're going to channel two point five billion 
SDRs, that's special drawing rights, uh, and that's equivalent to around 2.6 billion pounds uh, to this newly established uh, Resilience uh, and Sustainability Trust. Um, and so, of course, this will allow Ukraine to access these SDRs. So SDRs, uh, these are classed as, a, as a, an international reserve asset. They were created by the IMF. Uh, they're linked to a basket of currencies, including the dollar, the yen, the yuan, the euro, and the pound. Um, and so uh, countries can exchange any SDRs allocated to them for uh, currencies for, that they can spend. Um, and then, uh, well, then there's no particular prerequisite put on uh, when they need to pay that money back. They just have to continue paying the interest payments uh, in perpetuity. And, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the main loan doesn't necessarily have to be paid back at any particular time. So undoubtedly, that is going to result in significantly more uh, arms in the country. So you're telling me, Mike, that oh, this aid isn't free? Are you telling me there's strings attached for the Ukraine that they'll plunge them into debt for the next uh, 20 or 30 years? Is, is that what it is that what's happening? Uh, well, I mean, yes. <laughs> right, so a great, great deal for Ukraine. Great deal for Ukraine. They'll be poorer as a result. So, but uh, on the subject of arms and weapons here, you'll see this report in a number of media outlets, lack of traceability of weapons supplied to Ukraine could be a concern for the US. So they're complaining about a black hole, Mike, with all the weapons that we're shoveling into that country. Yeah, go Do you ahead. think it's really a concern for the U.S. or is it more of a concern for the for Europe and the United Kingdom? Because wh where are these weapons going? Are they heading back in across EU borders by any chance? They they, they may hit the, some of them will be on the black market, no doubt. Um, unfortunately, though, we're going to have to be the bearer of bad news, Mike. They're not all going to make it to the black market, and they're not all going to get fired on the field. Right. Um, a lot of them are going to be liquidated. Um, by the Russian Federation as they have already. So as fast as they're sending weapons in, the Russians are blowing them up, Right. basically. So here, this is from uh, TASS News, Russia to destroy outdated military equipment supplied to Ukraine by the West. Uh, this is one of their diplomats speaking uh, here, Dmitry uh, Polyansky, and NATO's Eastern European members also seem satisfied. They no longer have to think about how to get rid of their uh, obsolete Soviet era weaponry. How about that? That's an interesting angle here. And while promising to deliver to Ukraine brand new NATO-grade equipment, they readily dispatch specimens that often fail to either shoot or move, knowing that Russian forces would grind this scrap metal, uh, saving them the trouble with disposal. And on the back end of Mike, it's the, the all these countries will get backfilled with new kit Right. Uh, from the uh, great military industrial complex defense contractors. Fantastic. So the share prices in Lockheed, Gr Northrop Grumman, all doing good. British British Aerospace, all doing great. Uh, so it's a, it's a great uh, payday. This has been a huge windfall for the military industrial complex. This is just like the vaccine windfall mm -hmm. from the pharmaceutical companies with the uh, COVID jibby jab. It's the same type of thing. Call it a sugar high. Uh, guess guess what happens? There's a huge crash afterwards, like you saw with Big Pharma, and the same will be here. We thought we'd show you this image up on screen here. Slava Ukraini, and it's a great little cartoon. But yeah, uh, Ukraine is basically a uh, trash compactor uh, for arms uh, from the West. Uh, and also the uh, Javelin and the N-Laws and the uh, anti-tank things, they're not all working. Um, they're not performing as sold, are they? No. 
No, they don't appear to be. I mean, when we showed the uh, clip of uh, Ben Wallace being taken for a ride, uh, well, he was suggesting that the British anti-tank weapons weren't failing, but he certainly was acknowledging in the same breath that others were. Scott, uh, Scott Ritter, uh, former UN weapons inspector, he did uh, some good analysis on this. He's talking about the servicing records and repairs for Russian tanks have sustained multiple hits, some of them four and five hits. They're still running. Uh, so you found this data out. Um, and so the Ukrainians are claiming that these uh, anti-tank uh, uh, weapons are getting from the NATO have a 100% kill rate or some outrageous claim mm -hmm. like this. The, the actual statistics on this are much different, uh, not quite 100% and probably even less than 50%. Who knows what the actual number is, but they're not, they're not the all singing and dancing javelin missiles or N-laws uh, that they're built in the media. So again, that's the, supposed to be the big win for, for, for NATO is the anti-tank uh, weapons. That was the big marquee item. That was the whole, you know, to sell the whole program on here. Yes. So, so, go ahead. so uh, the issue of, uh, on Wednesday, we were reporting that uh, Sergei Shoigu had mentioned that the Ukraine conflict was going to see advanced weaponry moving in on the Russian side. Um, but we're seeing increasing uh, militarization in China and Russia. Well, let's start off with China here. Uh, and the South China Morning Post yesterday saying China's uh, Navy shows off hypersonic anti-ship missiles in public. So uh, we're getting some demonstrations both from China and Russia for, of new types of weapons. Uh, the Chinese seem to have an operational hyperso hypersonic now. Uh, but the Russians have uh, made a step forward with uh, intercontinental weapons? Well, the hypersonic missile is definitely a revolution in military affairs, but this is another level here. Russia conducted its first full flight test of the new Sarmat uh, ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile. And what this is, look, it's got a maximum range of uh, 12,000 miles, over 12,000 miles, 18,000 kilometers, Mike. This can go over the poles, it then comes down to a lower altitude and splits off into four cruise missiles. Okay, almost impossible to defend against mm. with today's anti-aircraft or uh, uh, ground missile defense systems and things like this. So uh, literally, this is a revolution in military affairs. This is a game changer. This is a clear signal, and they're going to deploy these on in the fall. Okay, they're ready to deploy in the fall. Rush is ahead. Right. Russia's ahead in, in the highest level. So we're... The, Russia, Russia's not only ahead and technologically ahead, uh, but they've still got their arms. We're busy giving our arms away at this point. They, they, yeah, they, they've got a strategic advantage. They've got a technological advantage. They're, they're, they're very focused on uh, securing their own defense uh, in this matrix, okay? So uh, this, the, where, 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 are we, where are our priorities in the West? Well, I mean... So th there is no, in, in any game theory or any wargaming on this, um, rushes ahead, period. So th this is a game changer. And I don't know if everybody's woken up to this yet to realize that we have to talk to these countries. Uh, if you're in the West, you have to negotiate. Uh, you can't just uh, fling insults and then you know, try to destroy their economy or whatever. You have to listen. People at the UN have to talk, have to get together. Um, because, you know, things are changing. Well, just keep that in mind in a few minutes when we're talking about NATO expansion, but uh, uh, what's next? Uh, this is also a big thing to look at here before we go to our uh, midterm, mid halfway term break here. Uh, French elections are coming up Sunday, second round 
Macron, Le Pen, uh, it's tight, it's very tight, it's close. Uh, but, you know, so let's see, what, what, what is the establishment and the bankers? What do the spooks and the bankers think? Who's going to win? Well, I presume they're hoping that Macron is going to win. Well, let's hear, let's hear from the spooks and the bankers. And what do they read? Well, or where do they put their information out? The Economist, of, of course. course. So what do the spooks and the bankers say? Emmanuel Macron remains the strong favorite to win in France's presidency. There you, there you go. It's a done deal. But is it? Is it a done deal? That's the question. Yes. They said that Hillary Clinton was going to win by a landslide, and she didn't. So uh, the polls that we're looking at, Mike, they look very tight. They look very tight. So uh, Le Pen, uh, Marine Le Pen, has a shot. Okay. If she does, it would be it would send tremors through the EU. Trust me. Um, so, but uh, here, here's the thing: uh, what could change this result for Macron and Le Pen? An announcement that might work against Macron and his policies, for instance. If the EU is to announce that there's going to be an oil embargo, uh, here we go, the EU closes in on a Russian oil ban, but how tough will it be? There's a lot of talk in this area. If they announce this before the election, Mike, it's going to hurt Macron mm -hmm. because this is tied to Russian sanctions. Marine Le Pen doesn't want to go that way. She's more pro-sovereignty. Uh, she's more pro-French sovereignty, uh, not uh, EU uh, lording over France. Sure. So, it, so they're going to postpone this announcement, and we, we're told to expect uh, the EU to announce this Russian oil embargo, an EU oil embargo of Russian oil, after the election, in order to help Macron. Okay, so make of that what you will. We'll see what happens. We'll see what the result is on Monday, yeah. Monday night, right? And then we'll see if this announcement comes to fruition. Right. Okay. Well, well, the implications uh, for the EU, if they, if there is such a, an embargo, are huge, as we'll see in a minute. But before we get there, let's just come back briefly to NATO again for a second. Here's Vice Admiral Gene Black, who's the U.S. Navy's sixth fleet commander, uh, saying, uh, "On February the 24th, we all woke up to a different reality. We now live in a Europe where Russia violated Ukraine's territor territorial sovereignty and now threatens Eastern allies and partners in ways not seen for 75 years. Uh, over the next two days, we'll work on ways to best align our collective strength to deter conflict, and if called upon, respond swiftly and effectively. Uh, we have an obligation to maintain readiness and demonstrate a credible and capable maritime force." which will maintain freedom of the seas, ensure free economic exchange uh, and maintain maritime security. And he was saying all this uh, while he was uh, uh, at the Cooperative Strategy Forum held in Sweden. And this is all about uh, the US uh, attempting to encourage Sweden into NATO. Now, what was the uh, uh, Russian response to this? Well, here's uh, Maria Zakharova saying, under the auspices of the US, Brussels has been pulling Sweden and Finland into its structures for a while. There have been various hybrid measures on the actual pulling in under the guise of drills or training sessions. Uh, we made all our warnings both publicly and via bilateral channels. They know about this, so there are no surprises. They're informed about everything, what it will lead to. I think, like once again, the Russians uh, making their position absolutely clear on, Russia, on Sweden, Finland joining NATO. Uh, again, though, the question is, who is causing the trouble? Is it the Russians with their responses in this way, or is it the determination of the West to expand NATO right up against Russia's borders? It's a consensus, even in the foreign policy community uh, in the West, that uh, it's a bad idea for Ukraine to join NATO. That's at least the scholarly community and the people who inform policy are saying that. So the last thing you want to do is provoke Russia by trying to push Sweden and Finland in as cannon fodder, 
for NATO, and that's exactly what they're doing. So they're, they're being pressured at the highest levels diplomatically. This is coming from Washington. There's no doubt about it. And I'm sure Britain is uh, very keen to see them pushed into NATO as well. Well, indeed they are. And our despicable British press, funded now increasingly by the British government, of course, uh, is pushing out headlines like this. Polls should UK encourage Sweden and Finland to join NATO after Russia's threats. Well, that isn't after Russia's threats. This is the key point. Uh, Russia is feeling threatened and is making a point that if Sweden and Finland joins NATO, there would be consequences in terms of uh, security. So logic would dictate maybe you should sort of slow down on this a little bit, maybe. Maybe you, know. you should have a proper conversation with the Russians. Maybe there should be some questions asked by the Western media as to what our politicians and military are doing. And could this make the situation worse or better? Right. I mean, these are fair questions, right? They are. Why are we the only one asking them? That's the, that's the problem, okay. Okay, but if you like what the UK column does, as opposed to the Daily Express or any of these other uh, outlets, uh, please head over to uh, community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there, or you could support us uh, via the shop. Uh, that's at shop.ukcolumn.org. Uh, but in any case, uh, please do share any material you find on the various platforms. That's right. So uh, quick advertisement, Patrick, for uh, Greg Sharkey's latest uh, event, Imperial on Imperialism on Trial event. Sure. For, for the Northern Irish uh, uh, viewers that we have, uh, this is, looks like a very good event, Imperialism on Trial, Conflict Resolution and Global Peace. Here, uh, speakers look very interesting. Billy Stewart, former DUP, former British soldier, uh, and also Tommy McKerney, uh, Irish hunger striker, uh, activist, Michael Pike, Veterans for Peace UK, uh, a poet and a great public speaker. Michael Pike is brilliant and Fra Hughes, a geopolitical commentator, author. Um, very interesting. Uh, Fra Hughes has been on the ground in Donbass, by the way. Yes. Uh, and he has a, a lot of interesting things to say about that. So this looks like it's going to be an interesting event. That's in Derry. So if, you are, if you're in the Northern Ireland, definitely take a look at that. April 22nd, Friday. That's this evening, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Uh, okay, thanks for that. Now, uh, let's uh, move back to the uh, lovely Barbara Woodward, who is the... Uh, uh, UK's ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, and uh, yesterday they were holding an ARIA formula uh, uh, meeting. Uh, and this is, uh, um, ARIA formula meetings are convened at the, well, I'll just read what the UN says about it, at the initiative of a member or members of the Security Council in order to hear the views of individuals, organizations or institutions uh, on matters within the competence of the Security Council. So what was she talking about? She was talking about food insecurity. And uh, so today's discussion is particularly timely, she said, because Russia's invasion of Ukraine has disrupted the export of one third of the world's wheat. Uh, she said, so Russia's actions directly result in 1.7 billion people in 107 economies being severely exposed to at least one of rising food or energy prices or tighter financial finance conditions. Mm. Okay, well, I think it's a bit of a stretch to put that entirely at Russia's door, but anyway, that's what she said. Uh, in short, Russia has violated a sovereign nation, killed civilians, and destabilized the global economy. Uh, the risk of famine in Yemen is exacerbated as nearly 50% of its weight is imported from Ukraine and Russia. So 7 million Yemeni people are expected to be one step away from famine by June 2022. Sorry, Patrick, remind me, mm. this is the same Yemen that Barbara Woodward has absolutely supported, uh, the Saudi-led coalition 
bombing the hell out of over the last lot of years uh, with the complete relative silence of the uh, British and uh, international mainstream press. Oh, now all of a sudden they're concerned about... Uh, about famine, yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so then she went on to say, we know that Sudan, Somalia and South Sudan are likely to be hardest hit. Wheat prices there have, nearly, have already tripled in the last eight weeks. Uh, and again, it's interesting that she chose, uh, you know, Sahel countries uh, and a part of Africa that uh, the UK and the EU particularly interested in, and particularly interested in uh, put in, pushing in conflict security and stability fund money, the same kind of grants that we sort of saw in, in Syria. We have uh, the likes of uh, the BBC and so on pushing uh, narratives in there. Uh, and the question is, to what degree is the UK helping to destabilize those countries in the first place? So uh, again, a pretty distorted narrative. Very, from, very disingenuous of yes. her to throw it all at Russia's feet because what caused the global inflation, what causes the food shortage, the fertilizer shortage, it's sanctions. It's not the war, it's not Russia's military intervention that's done that. It's policies by governments, mainly uh, G7 countries that are leading this, that's causing all of those things to happen, just like COVID-19 uh, did not cause the global economy to crash. It was policies of our governments that did it, but everyone wants to scapegoat a virus. Now they're scapegoating Russia. These things were already in motion a long time before this conflict happened. All the quantitative easing, printing money, wasting money, wasting billions on te test and trace, vaccines, closing borders, ruining supply chains. That all happened before the Ukrainian crisis. And here we have the ambassador to the UN saying it's Putin and it's Russia. Yep. They're doing the same in Washington. 100%. And the question then, what are the implications for the UK? Um, so let's just have a look at this first. Uh, Britain braced for food crisis as rising costs hammer farmers. Now, the issue here is uh, nitrogen and nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, lots of gas required in the production of nitrogen fertilizer. It is uh, a necessity because, in fact, if you remove nitrogen fertilizer from the farming uh, workflow, uh, you end up with significantly lower yields. And if you don't, if you replace, or sorry, in order to replace nitrogen fertilizer with natural fertilizer from uh, farm animals, uh, you would need, for example, something, I believe it's something in the region of an increase of around 2 billion chickens in the UK just to provide the fertilizer that we might need to replace nitrogen. So, And so, they want to get rid of meat. These are the same people that want to get rid of meat. This is absolutely right. So, so here's the problem. Uh, Britain is staring at a doubling in the price of eggs, for example, a doubling in the price of milk. Uh, goodness knows what's going to happen to meat prices over the next uh, uh, little while. Uh, so uh, this is not just something which is a problem for uh, developing countries. Uh, this is a problem here as well. On the poultry side, let me just add, and I hope you, I hope you expand on this on Monday and next week, Mike, and Wednesday. The avian flu, the bird flu, there's already reports, even in Britain, that there's avian flu going around and they're moving the hens indoors and there's no eggs available and a lot of the free range stuff. This is, this is a talking point we're seeing in other countries as well. There's a lot of fear mongering. Robert Redford from the uh, former CDC director saying bird flu is going to be the next pandemic. They're already talking it up. Okay. And so th at the same time, you've got this crisis with the meat industry, you've got the supply chain issue, you've got the food shortages, and now you inject a virus in there a pandemic, right. it's just going to be absolutely a perfect storm. Right. So you would think, would you not, Patrick, that 
when we're facing this kind of recognized uh, food crisis that the UK government would be doing everything to ramp up food production in the UK. But we'll just remind you what we reported a week or so ago. Uh, George Eustace here, the Environment Secretary, of course, they have launched their uh, lump sum exit state scheme so that any farmers that want to retire or exit the industry uh, can, uh, can do that with the least friction as possible. Um, and, but of course, they're saying that that will free up land for new entrants to farming. But what will these new entrants uh, be doing? Will they be increasing uh, yields or will they be jumping on with uh, uh, much enthusiasm the rewilding program that the UK government is pushing forward with? So look, uh, let's just look at the implications then. Um, so inflation, uh, now this is, uh, this is uh, uh, inflation in terms of not, not consumer uh, price inflation, but production. PPI, production price yeah, inflation. The backbone of the economy. So that's the headline figure, 30.9%. Uh, let's just show you the graph uh, to show you what has happened to, to give the, you know, that is pretty clear uh, what's going on there, Patrick. The producer's index in Germany. Now, the last time it got this high, Mike, was 1949, okay? And it's going to go higher if there's an EU oil embargo. So, which they're talking about. Indeed. That so, number is going to go up. So 30.9% on average year on year. Uh, the largest part of that was energy. Uh, that was 83.8%. Uh, and of if you break down energy, then you've got natural gas going up by 144.8%. Uh, electricity up 85.1%. Uh, heating oil rose by 138.8%. Um, and uh, with vegetable oil is up 72.3%. Butter up 56%. Uh, and uh, so this is not going away anytime soon. It's not just Germany. The, uh, this, is, this is consumer price inflation in the Czech Republic is the, the other one that's been announced uh, in the last day or so. 12.7% uh, year on year. Uh, that's up from 11.1% in February. Uh, these are the highest numbers since 1998. Um, and uh, so fuel prices uh, in the Czech Republic rose 50% compared to the same month in 2021. Uh, electric, sorry, electricity prices up 24.7%, natural gas up 37.7%, uh, flour 30%, milk 20%, uh, butter 31.9%, uh, potatoes 21.4%. It's not going to end anytime soon. Uh, and uh, the current policies, uh, the current uh, war drums policies are not going to improve the situation. They're not. They're not. This is going to get worse. And But don't worry, it's Putin's fault. We don't have to take responsibility for it. Our governments can just uh, pawn it off on, on Putin. But uh, in terms of the uh, CDC conversation, I don't know if a lot of people are aware uh, that the CDC um, basically uh, is had to end the mask mandate on public transport, airports. In America, if you step into an airport, you have to wear a mask right. and on the plane. So a federal judge in Florida this week, early this week, knocked that back, canceled it. Massive defeat for Joe Biden. Totally embarrassing defeat. Massive defeat for Fauci, but hey, they're fighting back. Look at this. The, the Justice Department is uh, appealing the mask ruling after the CDC uh, says the mandate remains necessary for public health. So the CDC is trying to override the, the, the judicial decision, the judicial legal decision. Right. Can you believe this? Yes. So guess who's angry about this and is, is backing the CDC? is uh, none other than Lord Fauci. Lord Fauci, right. So let's listen to what Lord Fauci has to say about government, about law, about our rights. Let's listen to this. 
both surprised and disappointed because those types of things really are the purview of the CDC. This is a public health issue. And for a court to come in, and if you look at the rationale for that, it really is not particularly firm. And we are concerned about that, about courts getting involved in things that are unequivocally public health decisions. I mean, this is a CDC issue. It should not, should not have been a court issue. Right. So the CDC is above the courts in his mind, uh, and that's their decision, and nobody should be able to say anything about that. So anything in public health, laws and courts and rights, they shouldn't have any jurisdiction. Yeah. It should be the experts. You heard it there from the horse's mouth, people. This is what these people really think. This is what they really want to do. They want to ride roughshod over government, and it's not just in the U.S. All the public health mavens in Europe and the UK, they probably would love to say what Fauci just said, mm. uh, it, it, only that they might not be able to actually get away with it uh, yet, yet. So just be on notice. This uh, battle's not over. Who else is weighing in on this is the former president, Barack Obama, has resurfaced. He's being very visible now. He's all over the place. He's making statements and, and threats, and uh, he's involved now in everything. So he had something to say about vaccines, Mike. Obama uh, gave this speech recently at Stanford University in Palo Alto, and this is what he had to say about the vaccines and those anti-vaxxers. Listen to this. <laughs> and yet, despite the fact that we've now essentially clinically tested the vaccine on billions of people worldwide, Around one in five Americans is still willing to put themselves at risk and put their families at risk rather than get vaccinated. People are dying because of misinformation. Well, he's claiming people are dying because of misinformation, but that little snippet that he uh, let, that little comment he let slip right in the beginning of that was really telling. So he's a, he has just said, that it was a clinical trial. Yeah, the vaccine rollout globally is one big clinical trial. It was a big test. It was a big experiment, and you were the clinical trial participants uh, out there. So there's Obama admitting it. That shows you, and get in his mind, that you can see how he thinks, what he really believes, and this smacks of Malthus Malthusianism. He's yes. on, totally on board with the Gates uh, agenda, and they have the same mindset, these people. So Obama is saying that it's totally safe. Billions of people have taken it, right? Totally safe. And uh, that one out of five people are putting everybody else's lives at risk. That's been so thoroughly debunked by now. It's ridiculous. And the debunking continues. Look at this. Science Direct, we've put this up on screen. Latest study, innate immune suppression by SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccines. Uh, the role of the G quadruplexes, exosomes, and microRNAs. Here's the highlights of this particular piece of scientific work. mRNA vaccines uh, promote sustained synthesis of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Well, we knew that, and it can't be good. Uh, spike protein is a neurotoxin. It impairs DNA repair mechanisms. Thank you, Barack Obama. And suppression of type 1 interferon responses result in impaired innate immunity. In other words, it undermines your immune system mm -hmm. and your immune response. Thank you, Barack Obama. And here, mRNA vaccines potentially cause increased risk to infectious diseases and cancer and myocarditis and a number of other things that we've covered uh, on this program. And finally, uh, 
uh, Condon optimization results of the G-rich mRNA that has unpredictable uh, complex effects. That's a bit technical, but you get the general gist of this. The verdict is this. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. So Obama's gaslighting uh, again. This is all he, he does. This is all he seems to know how to do is gaslight. And he, not only that, he's very active now. We'll go to, to Twitter here. And in recent years, we've seen how quickly disinformation spreads, especially when I do it, he says. No, I'm just kidding. Especially on social media. This has created real challenges for our democracy. Here we go again. Well, I think the real challenge for the democracy is the fact that there are so many people uh, giving alternative positions the truth, in other words, uh, and uh, they don't really have answers in most cases. Well, it's a challenge to their dictatorship, not to democracy. Uh, asking questions is democracy. Having uh, opposing opinions and having an open forum debate is democracy, not what Barack Obama is trying to sell here. And then he goes on to say, look at this. It gets better, Mike, and don't worry, he's got a foundation now. He's got a foundation through the Obama Foundation, we're working to empower and equip emerging leaders to tackle issues like the spread of disinformation. So billions of dollars are pumped into his foundation to stop disinformation. Yes. This is Orwellian to the nth degree. And just if you want to know how far this spreads, go to the Brownstone Institute. Amazing piece here. The, the federal government forces social media companies to censor Americans. There's a big lawsuit going on, by the way. Uh, the federal government is being taken to court by a number of high-profile uh, Twitter users about this very thing because the government put pressure on the social media companies to deplatform and censor and shadow yes. ban people. It's going to come out in court. It's just a question of when. And I think I think they have a very very strong case. I know uh, some of the people involved in that case, um, and it looks like they have a very good case. It just depends how long it's going to take to adjudicate. Okay. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. Thank you for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Well, we'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual uh, on Monday. Uh, and we hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.